as the president, which is obviously going to be hard and difficult at times. And there's one particular scene where a very difficult season in his life finally comes to a head. So he made some decisions that cost people their lives. He survived an assassination attempt, and during that attempt, one of his best friends and aides actually got shot and almost died. He was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis and actually hid it from his constituency, and now it finally came to light and was made public. And finally, his longtime secretary died in a car wreck after buying her first brand new car in 70-some-odd years of her life. And where the scene picks up is he's standing at the National Cathedral after her funeral. He's just standing there in silence. And he's told by the uh, Secret Service that he needs to get going to a press conference to address that whole MS scandal that I referenced. But he tells the Secret Service agent to clear the cathedral and lock the doors. So you hear nothing except footsteps of the dress shoes tapping on the floor. And then you hear the doors close and the doors lock. Then he finally says, you're a son of a gun. Do you know that? Except he doesn't say gun. Someone has seen that scene. But he has this conversation with God, but this conversation is more of a diatribe. After everything that's been going on in his life, he just lets it rip. He calls the Lord a vindictive, feckless thug. He talks about how he's praised Christ's name, and he lists all of these things that he's done for the country, for his family, and then he says, that's not enough to buy me out of the doghouse? And then he ends this tirade with a symbolic appeal to his self-righteousness. Being a Catholic, he starts yelling at God in Latin. And I actually looked up the translation. He says, am I to believe these things come from a righteous God, a just God, a wise God, to the cross with your punishments and to the cross with you? That is being a beast before the Lord. When I saw that scene, that scene sticks in my mind so much, and I think... That's how Asaph almost acted before the Lord. See, Asaph, the author of this psalm, sees the prosperity of the wicked. He sees that he's not prospering. He thinks he is in God's doghouse. But before he goes on a blasphemous temper tantrum, he slows himself down. He works through the situation. And after that, he writes us this psalm in Psalm 73. So we're going to look at three movements to the psalm. We're going to look at Asaph's preface, Asaph's disturbing observation, and then Asaph's reflective reorientation. But first, I keep using this guy's name, Asaph. So who is Asaph? There are a few Asaphs in the Old Testament, but this is Asaph, the son of Berechiah of the tribe of Levi. He was commissioned by King David and later by David's son Solomon to be one of the singers in the tabernacle and later the temple once the temple is built by Solomon. And in the whole book of Psalms, which our church is going through too, he, has, he wrote 12 of the 150 Psalms, and that is second only to King David. He wrote the second most Psalms in the Bible. So he's a pretty important guy, and he had a, a bunch of connections to the king of Israel. And so he's a worship leader for the people of Israel, and we don't know a ton about his life, but he is a relatively important figure in the Bible, so we should know who he is. But first, we're going to look at verses 1 through 3 of Psalm 73, and that is Asaph's preface. See, this psalm begins where Asaph ended. This psalm begins with Asaph having gone through his whole introspection, him working out his issue, and then when he writes the psalm, he begins with these words. Almost like a creed, he says, Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. 
But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Asaph starts with a truth that he holds very, very dear to his heart. That God is good. That God is good in his being. That God is good to his people. And that God is good all the time. And that all the time God is good. That is something that is deeply ingrained in Asaph's mind. But while the Bible says that God is good, and while our mouths confess repeatedly that God is good, sometimes what our eyes take in causes some dissonance. In our lives, we experience hardship and trouble. We live in a world where people sin. We live in a world where we sin. We live in a world where people get sick and die. Bad things happen in this world. But when we see those not good things happen, and we profess that God is good, when the numbers don't add up, something can happen in our heart and in our soul. And we can ask ourselves, is God really good? Does God even exist? Asaph asked those questions himself. This holy and righteous worship leader in the temple asked, is God really good? Because he saw, in his words, the prosperity of the wicked. If God is good, how can the wicked prosper? And that word prosperity in Hebrew is actually the word shalom, peace. He saw the wicked at peace, financially, emotionally, physically, at peace. Nothing's going wrong in their life. They have complete welfare, and because these wicked people have complete welfare, it didn't sit well in Asaph's soul. And it made him feel envious. This self-righteous and embittered jealousy that wicked people are getting what he thinks he deserves, and the wicked people aren't getting what he thinks they deserve. This is what Asaph is doing in these first three verses. He's telling us, I know that God is good, I know that I sinned, I questioned God's goodness, and I almost got the question wrong. Now let me tell you how I came to the right conclusion. It's going to take a little while, but just follow me before you make the same mistake I did. So now we get to Asaph's disturbing observation in verses 4 through 14. Verse 3 gives us a concise observation where he says, I saw arrogant and wicked people prospering. But he's going to take these next 11 verses and give us some detail. In verses 4 and 5, he points out the observable evidence that he is seeing people that are prospering. He says, they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. In a word, their life is easy. It's pain-free. They live their best life and then they just die. They're just happy until they finally leave this earth. One of the ways that Asaph describes them, he says that their bodies are fat and sleek. Now, Asaph's not trying to body shame anybody or anything like that. But let's remember, ancient Israel was an agrarian culture. They were farmers. They ate what they grew, and they grew it by the sweat of their brow. If there was a famine or a bad crop, they, they didn't eat, or they didn't eat as much. So I think it's safe to say that an ancient Israelite probably was a pretty lean person. So, having a fat and a sleek body meant two things. It meant you had a lot of food, and it meant you didn't work for it. They had other people 
grow their food for them, and they just threw money at it, and they, were, they just had four-course meals for dinner every single night, and they were fat and prosperous. They didn't have to work for their food. They're so prosperous, it doesn't seem like they have any of the day-to-day struggles that a normal person has. And Asaph, in verse 5, Asaph uses two different Hebrew words to explain this. Verse 5, I would translate it as, they are not in trouble, they are not in the trouble of mortal, fleshy man, and they are not plagued like Adam. That word mankind is Adam, being, meaning the first man and his offspring. They do not have the trouble that we mortal, fleshy men and women do. They don't have to work hard. They don't have anxiety. They don't get depressed. They don't live paycheck to paycheck. They don't have family struggles. They don't get sick. They don't go through what we go through. Really, if you look at Genesis, th- Genesis 3 and Adam's fall, they're not, it seems like they're not affected by Adam's fall at all. They're not affected by death. They're not affected by this cursed ground that we have to work and cultivate for it to bear fruit. They seem like they're living in their own little garden of Eden full of health, wealth, and prosperity. Doesn't that make you a little envious too? Doesn't it make you a little envious when you see people around you living their best life while you sit there and struggle day in and day out? When someone that you know is a pretty bad person gets a promotion at work over you? When you're the pastor of a small congregation that labors to preach the gospel and you see people preaching a sugary false gospel and their churches are massive and they're flying around in private jets? It's a little personal. Makes me a little envious. But it makes us envious when we see wicked people, people that we feel that we are morally superior to, when we see everything they touch turn to gold and everything we touch turns to dust. Asaph sees people that don't struggle like he does. The way that he describes their immunity to struggle and pain makes them sound almost superhuman. They don't get sick, they don't die, they're just happy. They're superhuman. And what's more, they know, or at least they think, that they are superhuman. They know that they are prosperous. And they see that they are living their best life now instead of just being a mere mortal scraping by. If you look at verse 6, the first word in in verse 6 is therefore. And whenever you see a therefore in the Bible, so says Don Carson, find out what it's there for. Because so much hinges on that word therefore. Asaph is saying verses 4 and 5 are true. Therefore, what happens following... what happens in verse 6 and following is based upon that. These people are prosperous and they know it's prosperous and therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them like a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongues stretch through the earth. It's one thing to see someone who has it better than you. It's another thing to think to see someone who is prideful and arrogant because they know they have it better than you. They put on their pride and violence like clothing. They flaunt their insatiable appetites and they run their mouths mocking both God and man. They threaten oppression and have set their mouths against the heavens. This is wanton rebellion against God. 
There's no other way to cut it. It is wanton rebellion. And doesn't it make your blood boil a little bit when you see arrogant and blasphemous people who are also rich and powerful people? People who think that there are no consequences to their actions because they're so rich they think they're above the law. It makes Asaph's blood boil. And he wonders why God does not just wipe them off the face of the earth. Even more, instead of just wiping off the face of the earth, God seems to be blessing them. And perhaps this is the worst part of it. These arrogant and wicked people are deceiving God's people. Verses 10 and 11, Therefore his people, God's people, turn back to them, and they find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? There are people that are seeing the exact same thing that Asaph is seeing. The wicked people who are prospering and getting rich. But they're saying, well, if you can't beat them, join them. These people are walking away from Yahweh because they see these wicked people prospering. Asaph sees people that he assumes are, quote, pure at heart, just like he is. People who are faithful people, turning their back on God. He sees a bunch of his people drinking Kool-Aid. And we see that in our world, too. We see the influence of celebrity. We see celebrities buying something or advocating something, and we see normal people just eating it up, too. They choose sin. People lose their faith, and they turn their back on God and join in the revelry. They think God is too far away, too distant, to really care what people are doing on this earth. Is there knowledge with God most high? No, he's just too busy. That's the God of the deists, a God who doesn't care what goes on here. The wicked are prospering. God's people are giving up their faith, and Asaph is angry. He says in his heart, Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain I have kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. I mentioned a few of the troubles that the common man has that the wicked people don't. Another struggle that we have that wicked people don't is living a life faithful to God. Asaph gets at something true here. Living the Christian life is hard. Amen? Living the Christian life is hard. If it were easy, if the Christian life were easy, then Paul would not have written so extensively on it in his epistles. If the Christian life was easy, then Jesus wouldn't have had to come to earth and do it for us and wouldn't have had to die because we failed trying to do it. Living a life pleasing to the God of heaven is difficult. So difficult that we can't do it. It's difficult to see your sin. It's difficult, it's hard to become increasingly aware of your sin. The number of your sins, the depths of your sins, the hurtfulness of your sins, and the rebelliousness of your sins. It's hard to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. It's hard to love your neighbor as yourself. And it's hard to reckon with just how much we fail trying to do it. So why do we, why do you, why do I keep doing it? 
That's the question the world and Satan are trying to get us to ask ourselves. Why do we continue to follow Jesus? Why do you continue to follow Jesus when it is much more free, much more pleasurable, and much more socially acceptable to deconstruct your faith and forsake your God, who they would say probably doesn't exist in the first place? The wicked get everything they want and keep getting more of it, so why don't you just join in on the fun? Asaph tries to please the Lord, and he gets nothing but pain. He gets nothing but rebuke every single morning. And then Asaph starts to see that it's backwards, that God is blessing those who curse him and cursing those who bless him. And that's backwards, isn't it? I would be lying if I told you I didn't think that at one point in time in my life. I don't think I would believe you if you said you didn't think that at one point in time in your life. I would be lying if I didn't say, okay, Lord, I did what you said. I sought your kingdom first. Now, where are, where are all these other things that you say that you would add in after seeking your kingdom first? We think, I think, that we have the formula for God's blessing figured out. That if we just put in the right numbers, put in the right good works, we get blessing out of it. But that's not the way it works. You can't boil God down to a formula. Asaph is realizing this, and he's getting really frustrated that he can't figure it out. He says, all in vain I have kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. All of my devotion to the Lord has been pointless. That's what he's saying. That trying to please God has been pointless and fruitless. I get nothing but pain. While these words were in Asaph's heart, he held his tongue. We need to remember that he held his tongue. He did not say these words. He did not say these words because he said that he would have betrayed the generation of God's children if he had said this. He realized that he would not only sin against Yahweh, but that he would have led others astray if he had said these words. He realized that his interpretation of his observation was inaccurate. Truthfully, he did see the wicked prospering, but he misinterpreted it. He was becoming prideful, arrogant, and self-righteous himself and setting his own tongue against the heavens. But yet he held his tongue from blaspheming God and betraying God's people. And he sat down. And he figured out what was going on. The last movement, starting in verse 16 and following, is Asaph's reflective reorientation. Look at verses 16 and 17. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. That word, wearisome task, is the same word that's translated toil in Ecclesiastes 22 times. Solomon in Ecclesiastes is toiling. He's trying to figure out what life without God is like. And that makes sense because both Solomon in the book of Ecclesiastes and Asaph in Psalm 73 are trying to make sense of life with God out of the equation. Trying to make sense of this discrepancy between his suffering 
between God's people apostatizing and the wicked prospering is and was a wearisome and toilsome and troublesome task because God was not playing anything in Asaph's interpretation. And then Asaph steps steps into the temple. And that's when he starts to get some clarity. When I was in eighth grade, I got my first job. In eighth grade, I was able to go every Sunday night to the church that my mom worked at and reset the Sunday school classrooms and back into their preschool setup. And then I did some minor janitorial work, like clean the bathrooms and vacuum. And I also had to vacuum the sanctuary every Sunday. Now, this was a very beautiful old Lutheran church. The walls were red brick. There was stained glass. The pews were wooden. There was this crimson carpet by the altar. The altar itself was massive and marble. It seemed more like an old Catholic cathedral than what we would think of a church. And above that big marble altar, there was this wooden cross. To me, being so young and growing up there, that cross seemed 40 feet tall. But there was something about being in that room at night by myself that was numinous. That word numinous, this guy coined it to say that there's this inane sense, this innate sense of a divine presence in that room, an eerie presence where you know some sort of God is in there. Now this guy wasn't a Christian, and I honestly, I wasn't a Christian at the time. But I knew that in some way, shape, or form, God was present with me in that room. And because I wasn't a Christian, I gave it the old north, south, east, west every time I turned my back on that cross. But there is something about being in the quiet, in the dark, where you are just sitting there, and the only thing you feel is the presence of God. And that is exactly what Asaph was feeling when he went into the sanctuary, when he went into the holy place. Not just a holy place. He didn't just go into a prayer closet. He went into the holy place of the temple. Now you can read Exodus and also in uh, 2 Kings, I believe, where you see the temple and the tabernacle being built. You had the courtyard, and then you go into the holy place, and then you go into the holy of holies, the most holy place where the Ark of the Covenant is. But only the high priest did that once a year on the Day of Atonement. But Asaph was able to go into the holy place inside the first curtain. And inside that holy place, you had this table with the showbread. You had these golden lampstands or menorahs. And then you saw these massive curtains that separate the holy place from the most holy place with cherubim on it. The fear of God overcame Asaph in that room. And the fear of, the, and the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. And then he, only then, only when he was overcome by the fear of God and able to be wise, was he able to figure out what in the world was going on in his life and in his heart. Asaph just how important, shows us just how important it is to draw near to the Lord when there is a feeling that is overwhelming us, when there is something on our minds that we just cannot shake. Take anger, for example. Psalm 
4, verse 4, is quoted by Paul in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26. And in Psalm 4, David says, Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. David says when you're overcome with anger, don't let it rip. Sit on your bed in the dark, in the quiet, and figure out why you're angry, who you're angry at, and if you really should be angry. Anger is not sinful in and of itself. There is a righteous anger. Look at John 2 where Jesus is flipping tables at the temple. There is a righteous anger. But we need to figure out, we need to dissect it and figure out why we're angry. We need to draw near to God. And when Asaph drew near to God to to understand the situation, the solution to the issue was right at hand. He says, I went into the sanctuary and I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. It is true that there are wicked people living their best life now. But it's also true that they may not be living their best life for eternity. And just as God is truly good to Israel, truly good to those who are pure in heart, truly God sets the wicked in slippery places. It's the same word. Truly God is good. Truly God sets the wicked in slippery places. 100% of the time, God will give his wicked people their just desserts, just as 100% of the time, God is good to his covenant people. Asaph was missing the aspect of God's timing applied to God's justice. God is just. God will judge. But it's not going to be in the timing that we expect. Right now, Asaph is suffering, and right now the wicked are prospering, but it's not always going to be so. God will make everything right. Even Asaph, if he suffers until the day he dies, and the wicked prosper until the day they die, God still will despise the wicked as phantoms and receive the faithful into glory. That's what God will do. That's what he promises us. And that is the gospel, that he will dispose of the wicked in just condemnation and bring the faithful and the righteous into eternal life. The goats and the sheep will be separated. And even if the sheep suffered, they will still come into the pasture, into the fold of their good shepherd for eternity. Paul writes in Romans eight thirty-eight and 39, For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is true. That is true 100% of the time. But if you're like me, you forget it from time to time. Where you don't live in light of that from time to time. Happened to Asaph. Asaph was perplexed by the prosperity of the wicked. And he gives us an example of what to do when we're perplexed, when we're confused, when we're depressed, when we're anxious, when we're angry. 
and he, he reorients himself. He lays out the truth of the gospel and reorients his heart accordingly. And he does three things through this reflective reorientation. And there's going to be three more R's. He, re, he reorients himself through repentance, rejoicing, and recitation. In verses 21 and 22, Asaph repents. He turns. He confesses. He says, when my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. That word beast in Hebrew is behemoth. You know what a behemoth is, and it's something you don't want to mess with. He was a behemoth before the Lord. He was a bull in a china shop before the Lord. That's not how we should be before the Lord, is it? But he is confessing and he is repenting. He's confessing that when he said, all in vain I have kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence, he says, I sinned when I thought that and I am forsaking that. That was brutish and ignorant. And Lord, forgive me. He looked at his sin and he condemned it as sin. And he confessed himself to be a brutal and beastly sinner before God. There's one thing I appreciate about Asaph. is Asaph does not mince words. He did not mince his words when he wrote the first part of this psalm. When he saw how the wicked prospering made him so angry and embittered, he didn't, didn't mince words. And now he's not mincing words when it comes to his sin. He is condemning his sin. He is condemning himself as a sinner. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul talks about this. He says that there is a godly grief which leads to repentance. Grief isn't good. Paul also says there's a grief that leads to death. But godly grief leads to repentance. When you are grieved over your sin and you are cut deep because of your sin. And when you are cut deep because of your sin, you can go to the Lord who heals and who forgives and who restores for forgiveness. Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote a sermon on Psalm 73, and this is what he said. He said, We must take the details of our sins and ourselves into the presence of God. And before we speak to God, we must condemn ourselves. Our trouble is that we're not indignant with ourselves, and we should be, because we are all guilty of sin. These are horrid things in the sight of God, and we are not indignant we are on too good of terms with ourselves. We must learn to humble ourselves. We must learn to humiliate ourselves. We must learn to strike ourselves. We must learn that we are sinners through and through. And we must learn that God saves sinners, sanctifies sinners, justifies sinners. This is a trustworthy phrase, worthy of full acceptance, that God saves sinners of whom I am the foremost. That's what Paul said when he thought about the fact that he persecuted Christ's church. That God saves sinners just like him, just like me, and just like you. Just like Asaph. Asaph confesses and he repents of his sin. He doesn't miss, mince words when it comes to his sin. He was a beast and he confessed himself to be a beast. 
But only after Asaph does that is he able to rejoice in the forgiveness and the restoration of God's salvation. The second movement of his reflection is rejoicing. In verses 23 and 26, look down there with me. Verse 23, Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterwards, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? There is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. That word, nevertheless, is so rich with the gospel. We are sinners. Nevertheless, God saves us. I was a beast before the Lord. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. Asaph was a behemoth. Nevertheless, God loved him. God drew near to him. God restored him. It's the same thing in Ephesians 2. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, nevertheless, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, unmerited favor, you have been saved. By grace, Asaph is continually with Yahweh. By grace, Yahweh holds Asaph's right hand. By grace, he guides Asaph in his counsel. And by grace, he will receive Asaph into eternal glory. See, Asaph sees the wicked perishing. He sees their death coming swiftly and their death being eternal. But Asaph sees his suffering being temporary and the glory that he is going to be received in to be eternal. By grace, Yahweh did not let let Asaph go. Even though Asaph was in a beast-like tantrum, the Lord did not let him go. Yahweh held his right hand through it, guided him through it, and counseled him through it. And Asaph rejoices over this fact that Yahweh's hand never loosened on him. He rejoices in the good news that the Lord is with him and he is continually with the Lord. That the Lord takes, takes brutal, beastly men and turns them into saints redeemed by the blood of his son. Whom have I in heaven but you? There's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. That is something worth rejoicing over. That God is the strength of your heart and your portion forever. God is the strength in the portion of those who feet, whose feet almost slip, who, whose mouths utter blasphemies, who, who have unbelief well up in their heart from time to time. But nevertheless, God is still with us. And then he closes his psalm with a recitation of his conclusion in verses 27 and 28. He summarizes, For behold, those who are far from you shall perish, but you put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, for you, for us, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. 
joyfully Asaph repeats the salvation God worked for him on his behalf. He declares the work of the Lord that did not let go of him when he was being a brute beast throwing a temper tantrum. But for eternity, Yahweh will be his God. And because of what God did on his behalf, he will forever declare his works. And for us, church, there is one particular work that we shall declare. And that is the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. All of God's works are not only summarized, but epitomized in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Because Asaph went into that temple where day by day priests would sacrifice animals and throw their blood on the altar. And when done in faith, those priests could tell these sinful people that Yahweh has forgiven their sin. But the New Testament tells us about a great high priest who entered into a tabernacle not made with hands, but a heavenly tabernacle. And he didn't come in with blood of goats and bulls. He came in with his own blood. And he forever lives to intercede for us at the right hand of his Father until he comes again to judge the living and the dead. We shall tell of the work of Jesus Christ. We shall tell the work of the gospel because it is in Jesus that we are near God. It is in Jesus that God came near to us. His name shall be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. He will hold our right hand. He will guide us in his counsel. He will point us to the fact that while our flesh and our heart may fail and has failed and will fail over and over again, his didn't. His heart never failed. His flesh never faltered. And then nails pierced that flesh. And a spear pierced that heart. And it's because of what he did that he will receive us into eternal glory with him and his Father forever. And one day our faith shall be sight. One day a brutal beast of a man like me will be able to see his Savior face to face. I can't wait for that day. Can you? Let's pray. Lord, who have we in heaven but you? What on earth do we desire more than you? Our flesh and our hearts fail. Quite honestly, they probably failed us before we got to church today. But nevertheless, you are continually with us. You hold our right hand. You guide us in your counsel. And you will receive us into glory. Lord, when we look at this world and we see the prosperity of the wicked, when we see the blood of your saints being poured out, when we see peoples whose mouths are set against the heavens and threaten oppression against those of us who are on the earth, it makes us sad, it makes us angry, it makes us embittered. But Lord, remind us that you will receive us into glory only by faith, only by grace, only through Christ. 
that no, those who are far from you shall perish. But Lord, remember, let, let us remember that we were once far off ourselves and that you have given us the gospel to declare to bring those who are far off near to you by the blood of your Son. Lord, we love you, and it's in the name of your Son, Jesus, that we pray.